You are listening to the Fuerte Network. Hi everyone, bienvenidos a todos. Welcome back to Migrants on Air and Immigration Podcast. My name is Carlos Alberto and I'm here with my co-host Karina Dominguez. Karina, ¿cómo estás? Hola, estoy muy bien. Uh, happy to be here. How are you, Carlos? It's been a while since we, we recorded. I know, I'm doing good. A lot of stuff has happened in like the last two weeks. I actually just got back from um, the White House. So that was a cool experience. No talk about immigration, but you know, you can't really expect much. That's some hot cheetos though. I ate hot Cheetos, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, we should definitely do a, an episode on that experience. Yeah, I know. That was crazy. Like, um, they had mariachi, tequila. It was very um, Mexican's take on the White House. <laughs> I love that. But today we have a very special episode with one of your previous co-workers. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we're talking about today? Yeah, yeah. So I'm super excited to have her on. Her name is Lauren Costa. She is an immigration rights and international human rights attorney. She was based in Arizona. She just moved to New York, but she was an attorney working uh, mostly with detained individuals in Arizona on behalf of like, it's called the NQRP program. And during our conversations and interview, I imagine a lot of acronyms and things like that will come up so like we can like go through those right now like as pre-knowledge RP national qualified representative program it was a program in a couple of different states that gave representation like gave a lawyer to people who were detained who were facing mental health issues so when I was working with Lauren um, we were assigned to a bunch of cases like uh, with people with schizophrenia PTSD a lot of the major personality disorders kind of made individuals not be able to understand law and to represent themselves because the standard practice is that most people end up representing themselves in immigration court just because they can't find an attorney or they can't afford one and an attorney isn't given like in criminal court. So most people fend for themselves. But while I was working with her, um, it was a lot of kind of kinds of cases like that from a lot of different parts of the world. I've, I've We've worked with like Brazilian migrants, Persian like migrants, a lot of South American, mm -hmm. Central Americans, uh, Mexican migrants. I was super grateful for those experiences because for me, it helped contextualize kind of my own experience um, in contrast with other immigration groups. But yeah, she is a really amazing lawyer, always super down. I remember one of my biggest memories of Lauren was MPP was happening, the Migrant Protection Protocol. Uh, she went across the border and she actually like helped walk people to to the border to help them ask for asylum um, using like her attorney privilege. So that was really cool to see and be able to, to hear about afterwards. But this episode is basically going to be a lot of talking about asylum law, kind of explaining it. I know it's super, super complicated and everything that goes into it. But yeah, kind of explaining those processes and kind of what's happening in the news. No, and I'm really excited that you were able to connect with her and like ask her to be on because we've definitely talked about asylum a lot on the podcast but we've never actually had a lawyer like come speak to us about like the terms and just like the ins and outs of what happens so I think I definitely learned a lot from her and I'm excited for for our listeners to to hear what she has to say yeah no it was definitely like her experience and her positioning makes her like super super knowledgeable so super excited to hear what she has to say how she explains everything to us and just kind of like her experience as an attorney, things she does to de-stress and, and keep herself like healthy in terms mm -hmm. of being able to represent her clients and just kind of all of that. So I'm super excited to have her on. Yes, and I think we can just jump on into our interview then. Yeah, dale, dale, claro. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're here with our guest, Lauren Costas. Lauren, how are you? Thanks, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you so much for being on. I'm super excited to have you like speak with us about your experience and all your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Just to begin us, or to start us off, would you be able to introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, your work, and what is your story when dealing with like immigration and asylum law? As Carla said, my name is Lauren Costas. No, I am from and currently living in Connecticut. My mom immigrated from Italy when she was really young. So I've always been around immigrant communities and I really love different cultures and languages and hearing other languages was very normal to me. And so when I went to college, I did international relations because I got to take a bunch of classes to learn about other places. And while I was at college, I went to Bucknell 
And I kept veering towards the human rights law classes and the refugee law classes. So I wanted to focus on that when I went to law school. So when I was looking at law schools, I looked at clinics to see which ones had public interest facing clinics. And lucky for me, UConn Law, which is a public university of my state, had an asylum clinic, which worked out very nicely for me. So I went there. And in my second year of law school, I did the asylum clinic. So I represented a woman in deportation proceedings in her asylum claim in front of a judge, which is like the best experience I could have had. Like it was real lawyering with a client who desperately needed an attorney. And it kind of combined all my interests in one. Like I learned a lot about the country she was from, what happened there. And I was able to pull it together to be a lawyer here in the U.S. because I also learned in this time, I didn't really want to go live abroad, wanted to stay in the U.S. My family was from there. My parents were getting older. So I wanted to stay in the U.S. This kind of worked out well for me that it combined all my interests and it just was so important. And the protection she needed was just so critical. So I did that. And then I never looked back. After that, I interned at Human Rights First and Catholic Charities where I did asylum work. And then after graduation, I ended up moving to Arizona to work at the Florence Project on the border. And so I was there for six years and I did Know Your Rights presentations at the detention centers. I represented immigrants and whatever proceedings they had before the judge. I was part of the National Qualified Representative Program. So I represented immigrants who were unable to represent themselves. I did appeals. And then after six years of really loving Arizona, I was getting a little homesick. And so I moved back to New York, to Connecticut and New York to do my current job where I am doing universal representation at the New York Legal Assistance Group. So I represent still in removal proceedings, but does not matter if there are criminal convictions. It doesn't matter if their case is strong, like they get a lawyer with them. And yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing. And it's been kind of a roller coaster of a, I started my career during the Obama administration. Like the end, but it was during the Obama administration. So there's been a lot of change, but I love it. It's always interesting. It's always important. So I really love it. No, yeah, that's super amazing. And your trajectory, I think, is a really cool inspiration. I think especially as like a female attorney, I know law in itself is there's a lot of machismo and things that you all have to deal with as female attorneys. So super, super proud of you. One of the things I did want to ask you about kind of your trajectory and things like that is how you saw access to asylum and how you saw your cases become different based on whose administration you were under and kind of how that has changed over the years. Um, I think most people don't know how quickly things change, you know, from presidency to presidency. Yeah, absolutely. So they change a lot. Um, and I think maybe they hadn't changed as much in prior administrations, but don't think it's a secret that the Trump administration really targeted immigrants and targeted asylum. And so while, you know, I started working at the Florence Project in like the summer of 2016, so like really at the end of the Obama administration, but, and, and it's not like things were great in detained court in Arizona in 2016, just to be clear. But the sort of strategic way the Trump administration, particularly through Jeff Sessions, attacked asylum and had, like, Jeff Sessions knew exactly how to target asylum. He didn't always do it in maybe the smartest legal way. He, his opinions were written not really in the best way possible, thank God. But he knew that as attorney general, he could assign cases to himself and he just rewrote asylum law he would you know sign something and immediately thousands upon thousands of cases that used to be really good cases were no longer viable i'm not going to go through all of the cases that he changed but big ones were domestic violence where prior to that you know, if you met certain qualifications, that was a reason for asylum. If you were targeted because of your family, that had been a pretty normal reason for asylum since almost its inception. That got changed. And 
He took away some docket management, such as admin closure, which is a way for the courts to kind of put aside a case. People still get benefits. So if you're able to get a work permit because of an application that's pending before the court, you can continue to renew that work permit. But your case maybe be able to get resolved elsewhere, or maybe it doesn't, but you're not really a priority and you can live and work here with a work permit. That got taken away. There's just whole host of things that got taken away. And then that was just the beginning. And then they started to come up with new things. There was Remain in Mexico, which had people do immigration proceedings across the border, which was horrifying. That didn't work. And then there was the somewhat short-lived asylum ban, which is if you travel through a third country before coming to the United States, you were per se ineligible for asylum. So basically, if you were not Mexican, you were not eligible for asylum, unless you could basically show that you were denied asylum in Mexico, which good luck to you. I I had clients who actually tried to get asylum in Mexico. They cannot tell you what happened. Um, So that happened. And then that horribleness, you know, Biden came into power. And, you know, certainly at the beginning, it was a little bit of a slow start. But Merrick Garland did kind of systematically start going through and undoing Jeff Sessions's decisions. There's certainly been a change in the priorities of ICE and the Department of Homeland Security. They are dismissing cases, whereas before the goal was deportation orders. Now they're just sort of dismissing them. The not great part of dismissing is it kind of leaves people in this limbo. So if you have your case dismissed and don't have any other way to get status, you're just undocumented. You don't get to keep renewing a work permit, but you're not deported. So that is a benefit to to people depending on what their lives look like. All of that was good. So that's great. And then this year happened and things got a little worse again. And by little, I mean a lot. And I don't know how in depth you guys want me to go into the asylum, the sort of new asylum ban, which is, I think the full name is Circumventing Legal Lawful Pathways. Circumventing Lawful Pathways. It was enacted last month, the end of Title 42. And basically, they kind of take, not kind of, they take a lot out of the Trump asylum ban, but make it sound a little better. Basically, if you don't enter under a lawful pathway, which they consider to be like with a visa, via parole that was given before, or through an appointment on the CBP-1 app, which is, Mm -hmm. we go through that as well. At the southern border, that's important. God forbid we like police the northern border, but at the southern border, you're sort of assumed to be ineligible for asylum unless you know, you meet certain qualifications, you're an unaccompanied minor, a Mexican citizen, for example, so things like that. It's pretty bad. It's not good. It's very new. So how it's going to be ruled on, how it's going to be treated, how lenient or not lenient border patrol will be about letting people in based on some of the exceptions remains to be seen. I'm not hearing great things from at least the Arizona border, to be honest. And there's just a whole host of problems. I can speak specifically about Arizona. I don't have the contacts in other border states. So I'll note that the only place they're processing CBP-1 appointments in Arizona is Nogales. So hopefully you're near Nogales you need to get there. Getting those appointments is pretty rough. If the app can recognize your face, which is questionable, if you're darker than me, and for the people who can't see, I am pretty white, but it seems like if you have any color to your skin, the app doesn't seem to work very well in recognizing faces to even get an appointment. The appointments are pretty low in numbers. And I think that's being generous. People are waiting weeks, if not more, to get an appointment. I I think some people, it's only been a month about, and I still think people are trying to get appointments who may have been there from that time. There are some exceptions like a medical emergency or imminent and severe threat. What constitutes either of those things is 
somewhat left up to the discretion of who's ever reviewing it. The Department of Homeland Security has clarified that like imminent and severe threat is like can't be vague. It can't be generalized. You can't just say I am, you know, someone like, for example, like if you're a member of the LGBTQ community and it's dangerous in the city that you're in, like that's not sufficient. Lack of HIV treatment is not sufficient. Like it needs to be something pretty attenuated, like pretty specific to you. And there's discourse, at least I think among the Tucson sector of CBP that like, you better be in real, real, real danger. And they kind of want to see it, which sort of brings to mind, like, do you have to be literally running from someone and CBP sees you? Like, what does that mean? So my very long-winded answer to your question is things have changed a lot in in a very short amount of time, and they're constantly changing. Immigration, certainly in the last five years, more has been the subject of numerous federal lawsuits and injunctions. I'm not going to be surprised, and I think everyone's sort of waiting for this one to also go before a federal court, and we'll see if there's an injunction. That is certainly what happened with the last asylum ban. But until then, we're just all kind of waiting to see what happens And it has only been a month and they're letting in people at such slow rates that it's really not sure what it's going to look like in the long run. I did want to get your um, kind of your your summary of what a typical asylum case looks like, the process of that. But I think before we go to that, like what you were saying about the CBP one app, like, can we just talk about how absurd using an app on a phone is to make an asylum appointment? Like, because you need internet access, you need to speak the languages of, of the application and I know we've talked about this before, Karina, like the the app wasn't recognizing darker skin faces. Like, so like the racism behind that algorithm, like it's just super absurd. Like I can't imagine who would think that that's a good idea. So I don't know if you think as well, Lauren, is this like on purpose? Like, are they just doing this on purpose or like? I, I mean, I would assume, I, I have to assume, yes. I think yeah. um, so much of the immigration system is so coded in racism and The goal isn't to give people asylum. The goal is to expedite people through this process. And, you know, I can certainly tell you expediting people through this process just means more people are deported faster. But sort of the CBP one app not being available in many languages, like I think that goes, you know, we see that in removal proceedings. So one of the hardest things to tell people to do when I was giving Know Your Rights presentations in detention centers is that while during the hearing a person has the right to an interpreter in the language they speak best every document they must submit including their application has to be submitted in english and they don't get a translator like it's not like they they have translators for people in detention and what people are told and expected to do is find someone in detention who can speak your language in english and tell them what could be extremely personal horrifying things and hope that their English is good enough to translate onto this application. It matches what you're going to testify to and go from there. And if you didn't do this in a time the judge felt was sufficient, which is usually three weeks, then many of the judges in Arizona and in other detained courts would find your application abandoned and summarily deport you. Like that's the system they're going into, which is that a system built around people who likely do not speak English as their best language. There's no way to submit documents in any language but English. And that like we're just it's just compounding, I think, the racism that's already inherent in the system because no one has an interest in actually making the system better and doing it right. They just are focused so much on numbers and how to get people out of the system as quickly as possible. And that's just never the way asylum works. It's too complicated. It's too individualized. Like what someone has to prove is so absurd, frankly, and so psychologically difficult that doing it quickly is never going to be particularly fair unless you happen to be from a country that kind of ticks off the easy boxes of, you know, you were a political protester and the government, you know, against the government. And it was clear government actors that that took you and you have lots of evidence for it, um, which is usually 
people who tend to be more educated, who have more resources, many of whom are white. Like it just, it's a very different and inherently racist system. And so, yes, I, I think the CBP one app is maybe the worst conglomeration of really privileged people not understanding how this could possibly be a problem and truly not caring and just thinking like, whatever, we're going to do this. But the, yeah, as you said, the entire situation is absurd. Like, first of all, hope you have a smartphone. Hope you can find somewhere to connect it to. (laughs) Sorry that you're not white enough to be recognized by the system. Oh yeah, make sure you check it like every minute of the day and hope that you get an appointment. Oops, you're not in Nogales. Have fun traveling like hundreds of miles, which is also extremely dangerous if you like don't know where you're going. You don't have a car, right? Like it's just the whole system is absurd. And I I don't know who thought this was a good idea. I don't know who thought this would work, Um, but I don't think they actually care. I think it just gives them a reason to move people through quicker. Yeah, I think for me, it kind of shows that like, because this is like the quote unquote legal like immigration pathway, like people like under law are allowed to go ask for asylum. So to me, like this kind of shows like a shift in, I guess, political will on immigration. And it kind of scares me too, because, oh, if they're like cracking down on those established systems, like what about the rest of us who might not have like a legal status that's like fija, which I mean, to me is terrifying. But I think I also did want to ask, I know you were talking about kind of the the trauma that, that even asking for asylum brings. I remember when we would work together, a lot of like the testimonies and testifying on behalf of people in front of immigration judges, even that was traumatic, you know, like the even asking for asylum, I think in, its, in itself, having to relive your trauma is really, really hard. And a lot of people don't know that you have to do that in front of a judge to be able to even qualify for anything. So would you be able to give us like a little, like a quick little rundown of how to ask for asylum and what a typical case looks like? So I'm going to do it more on like, if you're already in the immigration court process, yeah. if you want to talk about the asylum office, we can do that after. But in the immigration, because I think the, that's the more traumatizing one is in the immigration court process. And that's what people are entering when they're entering right now. So you enter and much of the time you're given what's called a credible fear interview. So you are usually detained and on the phone with someone from the asylum office. Hopefully there's an, there should be an interpreter and you are asked questions about why you fled. So we're starting off real great. Like, welcome to the U.S. We incarcerate you and we put you in a phone booth that hopefully others can't hear I will certainly tell you, like, you can hear, at least in the facilities I worked at, because I could hear people. And let's talk about what brought you here, which likely, if you fled your home to claim protection, is not the easiest thing to discuss. So you're talking to some disembodied voice on the other side of the phone, and maybe you get a good asylum officer who is kind and gentle and asks the correct questions that need to get asked to pass you to the next level, but you might not. And that's kind of the crux of immigration is it kind of depends on luck and how kind basically someone is to you. But let's say you pass that, you show that you, you know, there's likelihood that you'll basically demonstrate you qualify for asylum. You're then put before the immigration judge. You have to fill out an application. I think it's 13 pages in English. And there's one full page about like, you need to list every address you've ever had, which is the most American thing I've ever heard because other countries like do not have address systems like we do. Why this is necessary, I can't tell you. I've never had this come up in any of my cases, knock on wood. But like why this is there just seems like another thing to deny people on if they can't fill it out properly. And then you have to describe why you're applying for asylum. The application is not the clearest. Like what it tells you to do versus what the judges expect you to do are not necessarily the same thing. But basically you need to fill out an application that explains in relatively significant detail why you left your country and why you're afraid to return in a couple of different places. You need to 
also lists like any criminal history you have. And like I said, this is all in English. So we're starting off great. Once you submit that, you are then scheduled for a final hearing. And depending on where you're at, that can be in a month, that can be in three years, really depends. And so at that final hearing, it is a completely adversarial process. There is a prosecuting attorney against you from the Department of Homeland Security. Um, There's a judge who is not always neutral. Unfortunately, sometimes the judge is still similar to a prosecuting attorney. And there's an asylum applicant who needs to testify consistently with their application that could have been submitted three years ago. It could have been translated by a random person in detention who maybe doesn't speak English fluently. And it could have been submitted by someone who didn't feel comfortable telling a random person in detention that they were, for example, sexually assaulted. It's not really something people want to share with a random person. And if they do not testify credibly, and there's a lot of reasons someone who is severely traumatized wouldn't testify credibly, they're ordered removed. But it is a long process where they are asked really sometimes invasive, horrifyingly invasive questions. And it's a very racist system where if you cannot provide dates or your understanding of time is different, or if you just get confused over really minute details that frankly don't matter, like you can just get found not credible. You can get found that you're just not reasonable and get ordered removed. I mean, I've had people being cross-examined on rape, on sexual abuse, which is horrifying, on physical abuse. I've had DHS attorneys note that, oh, you can't remember a certain date or you wrote this date here, but now you're saying it's this date as reasons to deny someone. Um, but it's, it's a really, really horrifying process. And whenever you talk to, because I've worked with a lot of victims of severe trauma and victims that have really severe PTSD. And when I talk to psychiatrists who evaluate them, they're like, really shouldn't be talking to them about their case. Like you don't really just reminding them of the trauma is not healthy for them. And unfortunately, like this system requires it at so many separate points. Like you need to do it at the credible fear interview. You need to do it at the application stage. You need to do it in a declaration. You need to do it at trial. Like it's, it's just horrifying. I, I think if you have the benefit of a lawyer to, is that the lawyer can maybe recontextualize some of it and get a psyche val and ask questions in maybe the kindest way and the way that would trigger your client's memory. I had a client who could not testify linearly at all. So we just kind of went back and forth. But if she was on her own, I don't really know what that would have what would have happened. Um, but it's a really horrifying process. I am interested to know like what happens afterwards, like whether people are denied or they're approved, like what usually happens? Are they provided with any resources or things like that? So um, if they're denied, they're given absolutely nothing. They are ordered removed. And uh, if you can appeal that decision, but there's no services that they get. If they are granted asylum and it is a final decision, so there's no appeal by the department of Homeland Security, they do then qualify for refugee benefits. They're considered a refugee. So there's offices of refugee resettlement like all over the country so they can get connected with them. Is mental health treatment due to the traumatization of what they just suffered given to them? No. But they they do get access to a caseworker usually and someone to kind of help them get necessary documents and everything they need to live, basically. If, if they're denied, unfortunately, they're given nothing. And is... Have you found it like super common if someone is denied in the U.S.? Like, have you ever heard of anyone trying like in somewhere else? So I, I think a lot of people would like to do that. I, I think actually a lot of people like to come to the U.S. and then try to go to Canada. There's a real fun thing called the Safe Third Country Agreement, which means that if you so, for example, if you are in the U.S., 
don't apply for asylum, try to go to Canada, you're just going to get pushed back to the US because you were in a safe third country and didn't apply for asylum. And same thing, if you start in Canada, in theory, you'll get pushed back as well for the same thing. I think if someone tries to go somewhere else, if they try to go to Canada, that's again, an issue of privilege. Like I I think to some degree, the US has far more immigrants than Canada, because the US is there first. Like, unless people are getting visas to Canada and can afford flying to Canada or flying, you know, to other countries, that's great. Europe is not looking particularly great on refugee benefits either, and has also turned its back quite frequently and horrifyingly to refugees from Africa, primarily. There is like that, there's an incident, I believe, in the last week where 500 refugees died in a in a boat and maybe the Greek government helped that situation get worse than it was allegedly. So I haven't heard specifically of someone being like someone successfully not getting asylum in the U S getting deported and then going somewhere else. But to be super honest, I don't think any of my clients could afford it. And and I think that's also a privilege issue, whether they would be successful or not is a whole other thing. But I I think just at a base level, it's, it's a privilege issue. Yeah. I think, um, Lauren, going back to, um, Thank you so much for like explaining all of that. I think there's so much wrong with um, the current system. Um, before we get into kind of how your experience working in law has been and kind of the ways that you navigate those spaces, um, I wanted to ask, knowing that there's so much wrong with the system, is there anything that you think can be immediately changed for the better or somehow to make access easier? I would get rid of the current rule right now. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, oh my God, there's probably a million things. I think the, I don't think any asylum seekers should be detained. I mean, detention centers and detained courts are horrifying, like just as a baseline. I think that realistically with where the courts are right now, there shouldn't be any ridiculous rule about work permits and that if you're in removal proceedings you should get a work permit please I don't like the fact that there's not one doesn't exist I think if you are pro se without a lawyer you should be given some access to translators for your documents and for your application at a minimum I would love to see universal rep that like honestly universal rep all over the country is my number one but I would like the system to get fixed in general to not make that so necessary because yeah, it's all well and good that everyone has an attorney and an attorney is really important. Don't, don't get me wrong, but to some degree, I can only work in the system that I work in. And that if the law is racist, I am limited by my racist, horrible law. And I would like that to change. I would like a complete overhaul of the asylum system that we don't Currently, the asylum system works with a definition that was created after World War II, and the U.S. has consistently gone and like further narrowed that already relatively narrow definition. So I would like that to get redone at a minimum. And why people are fleeing looks a little bit different in 2023 than in 1945, shockingly. And I think that there should be... At a minimum, we need to go back and not only reopen DACA, but come up with some kind of permanent status, like number one. <laughs> like there's so many like immediate things to work on. And like just every, it's it's so bad. And there's so many things and it's hard to pick. Like I can pick a lot of things right now, which would sort of ease some of the current system, right? Like get rid of the lawful pathways, give everyone an attorney, give them interpreters or trans translators, because they do have interpreters in court, translators for their documents. But that's just working in this bad system, right? Do we need thousands upon thousands of people detained? Absolutely not. We don't need them detained during their immigration proceedings. That can span years. And you have people with no criminal history, or quite frankly, people who already served their criminal sentences. So the criminal court decided that they served enough time, like, why are people held in civil detention? It's absurd. There's probably more things I can add when I think about it enough, but off the top of my head, the things that I encounter most 
would be like those things. You mentioned how, you know, in 2023, there are different reasons why people are seeking asylum. And that made me think of an episode that we did a while back that focused on like climate change and migration. So have you seen any examples of people like seeking asylum due to climate disasters? And as climate change is going to get worse over the years, how do you think that is going to play a role in the asylum system? Yes. I have. So um, probably the biggest group of people that I've seen is in about 2017, there were large numbers of Haitians that were coming in after a large hurricane in Haiti. And I think the asylum system needs to severely change because currently that is not a reason for asylum. And the judges are are pretty pretty strong on that, and the, the case law is not great. And I think, you know, also post-World War II, who were the migrants looked a little bit different. I mean, like, my family are post-World War II migrants. Italy had a huge, huge, huge depression after World War II. My grandfather could not get a job anywhere in Italy, which is a pretty common refrain I hear from people right now. And... Luckily, he was from Italy and his wife's father was already in the U.S. And getting a visa and getting residency, if you were Italian, was a lot easier because they, the U.S. bases their green card numbers on, I don't know, like early 1900 immigration numbers. Well, a lot of Italians came over in like the 1880s. <laughs> and like there's huge numbers of Italians. So it's for a very small country, we have a huge immigrant population. So my my family was basically economic refugees that just luckily were able to come over with a green card. A lot of my family ended up in Montreal because they couldn't get a green card, but they left, right? Like that's what happens. And so, you know, I, I think going back to the racism, which all comes back is like, there were ways that like other populations at other points in time we're able to get in for these exact reasons. It's like, oh, there's a natural disaster. Okay, cool. Like economic downturn, like here you go. Like Europeans came over in large numbers from Ireland, from you know Italy and other countries prior to World War II for some of these disasters, like the potato famine and other things. And we dealt with it differently. Um, the world was different and they were white. Like, let's just all be honest about it, right? And I think you've seen that with the Ukrainian refugees. The yeah. Ukrainian refugees have gotten like almost a golden ticket to come in. Um, so I think, yes, to answer your question, 100% it needs to change. Will it is sort of where my concern is because what we've seen is instead of a widening of an understanding that the world is different, that the powers that be are different. I mean, even today, it is really hard to win a gang case in El Salvador or Honduras or a cartel case in Mexico. And like, I don't think it's a secret that these groups have huge amounts of power, but the law just doesn't work for it. And if you have a judge who's not inclined to grant, then the law makes it really easy. And so when you're thinking that we're not even able to give asylum for people who are viciously attacked, I get concerned what whether we're going to ever be able to open it up for climate refugees. And I think instead, what we're going to get are these sort of bad hack measures, which is probably the the simplest thing that we do is temporary protected status. And that's what we tend to give countries where they've been affected by natural disasters or by war. But we also saw that in the Trump administration, like how quickly that can go away. Temporary protected status has to get renewed every couple of years, like they have to just designate, I think they designate 18 months to two years at a time. That's like nothing. El Salvador has been designated for like 30 years, a very long time. But if the next administration is like, nope, we're good now, everything's under control. These people have no option, which is what we've seen being threatened time and time again by the Trump administration and easily by another administration in the future. And so I think there just needs to be like a full cultural shift on 
just immigration. Like we shouldn't be doing these half measures. Like what someone's lived here for 26 years. What, why are we not trying? Great. Here you go. Welcome. <laughs> like, what are we doing? We're going to deport you that we've let you stay here. And now we're not going to. And, and why, like, what does that serve? And it serves like, I know some racist idea of who belongs here or not but that that is what concerns me is like even when they have the option to expand or to see victims of even violence who should fit into the asylum criteria it is still really hard to get them to go to overlook the very narrow boundaries of where they are and that worries me with climate change no yeah i know i was like the, the century keeps on going, um, it's going to become an even wider issue. One of the things I want to ask before we we wrap up soon is on the things that you were saying on lawyering with bad law. Like, I know I've had this conversation with Karina and then also with a lot of other people kind of like in the immigration movement and advocacy and on the fact that it kind of takes both sides. Like we need people on the ground kind of protecting people under the current system, but like you also need organizing and advocacy to change the system because... If we're working with bad law and bad policy and things that are kind of racist in nature, like how good can you protect your community if that's the only tools you have? So like, what's your view of like lawyering in terms of like, I guess in conjunction with like advocacy and organizing um, and how like those two fields kind of like interact? That's a great question. And I think what I liked or what I, I, I guess liked is maybe not the best word, but I think when I was in Arizona, I would make novel arguments that, you know, I would just try to see what would work for really difficult judges. And sometimes like it did work. Like sometimes that worked and that's great. And I'm glad that that worked. I'm glad my client had that option or at the appeals court. And I, I think, you know, change is slow, like change is really slow, unless it's bad change and that could happen real quick, but like good change takes work. And so the advocacy and the organizers are so critical in like moving that change forward. And it is, it is so slow and it is so much work, but in the interim, there are thousands of people going through the system every day and the law can be shown to be like you, a, a good lawyer can show that maybe this case that offhand doesn't seem like it fits in your very narrow definition of asylum. Like if you just ask the right questions and present the law, oh, fun fact, look, it actually squarely does fit. That's great. And so I, I think that is critical. Um, but there is a tension. It was starting to become really like really a lot, I think during the Trump administration is like, to what degree are we enabling a system that's bad? And a lot more lawyers became far more involved in the advocacy in protests in reaching out to congressmen than I think historically they were because it just, I mean, the, the situation was so horrifying, but yeah, it, it can be really hard to kind of choose where to go and choose to do this. And I think at the end of the day, at least right now, while these amazing organizers who are far better at getting things done and knocking on doors and calling people, then like, that is not my skill. I know that. I support them however I can. And I try to help the people in front of me and try to get them the best outcome I can and preserve all their rights. And this is what I did a lot in Arizona is like, how do I preserve this? So in case something changes in the future, and quite frankly, with the Trump administration, like there were lawsuits all the time, like things changed on like a weekly basis, like to make sure that the advocacy efforts could still protect my client in a month, in a year to go back. No, and that's amazing. Thank you so much for that answer. I think it clarifies a lot of stuff on like those interactions. One of the final things I wanted to ask Lauren is more specifically on kind of your experience working with law and how you kind of de-stress and heal from that work. I know, especially when when we were working together, I there's a lot of trauma, you know, and hearing those stories over and over again. And I think one of the biggest like cases that affected me was, um, I'm not gonna say the name, you know, like 
you're not supposed to, but it was a, a Mexican mom with like really similar facts, like legal facts to like people in my family. And like, I know for me, like that affected me so much. Like I left the detention center, like bawling my eyes out. Um, so like knowing that that kind of stuff impacts you. So I guess like so emotionally, how do you de-stress and kind of heal um, after, I guess, tough cases or tough conversations with clients? Yeah. So I think the first thing is I had to recognize in myself when I was feeling that. I remember like one of my first weeks of doing a Know Your Rights presentation, I did it to a group of women and then I had to do intakes after it was like six hours in a detention center. And this was not every time I did this, but this specific day was like all severe, severe domestic violence, sexual abuse, rape. Like it was, it was a lot. And I like just wasn't even a functioning person at the end of the day. Like I didn't know what to do. I wasn't even sure. And I talked to a legal assistant on the team who was there that day, like a week later. And she was able to voice what I wasn't able to say because she had been there longer. And she was like, that was one of the roughest days I've ever had. Like, how did you feel after? I was like, oh, I just was not a person. Like, I, I think I went through like the rest of the day as a ghost. So after that, I was able to like, think like, this is bad. What is happening? What do you need? I personally like, will watch a stupid show on TV. I want it to have nothing to do with immigration. I want it to have nothing to do with anything bad. I used to watch like Parks and Rec, like as I did work just in the background. <laughs> Brooklyn Dynamics, like I just do things in the background yeah. <laughs> just to unfocus. You know, I have a very supportive partner, thank God. And he is really good at getting my head out of it. He'll talk to me when I need to talk about it. I call my family. I mean, I was, my whole family is on the East Coast, so I didn't see them, you know, maybe as much as I would like. I would hang out with my friends. I would, sometimes it is helpful to like verbalize what you're feeling. And so, especially like with colleagues where you just sort of process your emotions, like Carlos was, I'm a very big processor. Obviously I talk constantly. Sorry guys. <laughs> I just process things. And sometimes that's great. I'll cook. I like doing that, but I just try to get my head out of the game. And if I need to take personal time and not work, I do that because I've learned that like, I can like show up to work and stare at my computer. And if I'm a zombie, like that's useless. I'm not helping my clients. I'm not getting anything done. Like I serve no purpose. I could have just taken that time off and like gotten a massage or like went and got my nails done or something that's different. And that sounds so like petty and silly. It's like, oh, like you're getting your nails done and your clients are in a detention center. And like, that's not wrong, but it's a way to kind of take a step back and just do something nice that I like for myself and relax. And yeah. And then now I make pasta. That's like my big one. Which <laughs> big is like, pasta. That was the last thing I wanted to ask you. Um, I love your pasta attorney uh, Instagram. <laughs> I think it's such a cool, like, I, I love the name, but also like all the recipes and stuff. And to me, it seems like such a beautiful way to both like continue doing things from your culture, but also like sharing things with other people and maybe like an activity outside of the law that kind of makes you happy. Like, is that something that you started like super recently or something that you like recommend for other people? So during the pandemic, as everything, like a lot of people made sourdough, but I, for the first time, was not able to sort of go home. Like I was really lucky, like the Florence Project gives really good vacation benefits. So I had never been away from home for holidays or like I was always home for every holiday I went home every couple of months and I would just have Italian food in my mom's cooking and I think that was the hardest thing about Arizona is like not a ton of Italian immigrants there and so during the pandemic instead of sourdough I just started making Italian food that I couldn't get at home and so I would make gnocchi and I would try my best to make pasta some of it started when like there was like, everyone was like, so afraid to go to the grocery store. There was like, no, nothing in the grocery store. And I was like, well, I have flour. So here we go. Um, and then I, you know, did that to like various success, but then I would come home and like my wonderful mother, I'd be like, I'm trying to do this and it's not working. You know, you, you always need it. You need like that help. And so she would help me to be like, oh, 
I know the recipe says this, but it like depends on this and it depends on that. And the recipe is like guidelines. And so sometimes you need to add a little more or a little less, which hearing that over the phone is not very helpful. But like when she's in person staring at the pasta dough you're trying to make and she can be like, oh, add this or add that. So, you know, I just, my grandmother died when I was really, really little. And I have this like photo of us making pasta. Like I I must be two and I'm making pasta with her. And it started off as kind of like a challenge to myself, but it's been really fun. And I really love it as a way to like really reclaim some of that. Like I had been very dependent on my mom to like make me marinara sauce. And I would go over her house for like lasagna and I am, 34 years old, I should be able to do this myself now. And so I've been making it, I've just had so much fun. And the Instagram became a thing because on my personal Instagram, I would take videos, like time-lapse videos of me making whatever. And I had a lot of people, especially former colleagues who were like, oh, we really want to see, can you send recipes? Can you do this? Like, do lessons or do that. And so I'm not a professional. I'm like definitely learning along like Carlos has seen. It's like a lot of me trying things for the first time. And it's a lot of recipes that are from parts of Italy. My mom is not from, which has been a really fun learning experience. Not all pasta is the same. (laughs) I can't really rely on that anymore, but it's been really lovely being back on the East coast and making these things again and I feel like very attached to like my grandmother and and other people in my family and so that's kind of been really nice a way to do it and it is really relaxing oh that's so sweet I think a lot of us can relate to that um trying to hold on to those kinds of stuff um and before like on on the show we've talked about like joy and the importance of like when we're working with like these systems it's really important to still find joy in the things we do and have fun and just like the the most powerful thing you can do against like a such a harmful system is to have joy in your life and to have fun. Um, so thank you so much for that. And Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was helpful. And I know I talked a lot, but no, I love that. Like no, super helpful. I, I think for this episode, I had to sit back a lot and just listen in because I'm not super familiar with a lot of these processes. Even though a lot of us are involved in the immigrants' rights movement, sometimes we don't know like the ins and outs of them. So yes, just thank you so much for your explanation. I think you made everything really easy to understand and I really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you guys. Carlos, it's so good to see you. (laughs) I haven't seen you so long. It makes me so happy to see you like even over Zoom. All right, everyone, that was it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Lauren for hopping on and speaking with us today. Migrants on Air is a Fuerte Network production in association with Orona Multimedia. We would like to formally thank everyone involved in the creation of this episode. Your hosts have been myself, Karina Dominguez, and Carlos Yanez. Our guests, Lauren Costes. Graphics by Karina Dominguez. Theme song is Crazy Like That by Lo-Fi. Our editing done by Dani Orona. Make sure to follow us on Spotify for this and all other Fuerte content and make sure to log on to Fuerte.org and sign up for our mailing list. And finally, make sure you follow Lauren's Pasta Attorney Instagram account, which is uh, at the Pasta Attorney. We'll leave it in the description as well. But thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time.